This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. The land on which I am lucky enough to raise my son always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This episode of Ready or Not is brought to you by Pure Mama, the leading pregnancy skincare brand in Australia and New Zealand. Loved and trusted by over 40,000 women for pregnancy, postpartum and beyond. I was just like one day at a time. There were some days where the grief was so overwhelming that it was just, you just need to get through this minute. It felt like my life had just been turned upside down, set on fire and stomped on. I didn't even know who I was anymore. Whereas when I lost my mum, I was still me. I didn't want to be the sad girl anymore. And going back to work was a bit of a return to my former life before I lost Sunny. I got a lot of like, oh, you're living my worst nightmare. I just was like, I will not survive another loss if this baby dies. Someone said as well that grief is just love that has nowhere to go. And I think now I have somewhere for that love to go. Jade Huggins is a senior product manager at Portman's. She's also a mother of three. But while her first and third born are firmly in her arms, she sadly lost her middle child, Sunny, at 32 weeks. Here, she shares her story with us, how she returned to paid work after loss, and how she carried on through the worst pain of her life. She doesn't sugarcoat the impact losing Sunny has had on her, but somehow, she tells her story in a way that will leave you feeling a little bit heartbroken, yes, but also hopeful. Now we did run into a bit of an audio challenge with this recording but on listening back I can assure you that Jade is such a powerful storyteller and her story is worth your ears, it's worth your mind, it's worth your heart and it's worth your time. I'm Lucinda, this is Ready or Not and here is the warm and wise Jade Huggins. Jade, you delivered 40 babies as a newly qualified midwife before you made a change to a very different industry. What happens next? I did. Yes, I did. So I I studied midwifery just straight out of high school. Yeah, I kind of had this grand plan of getting into medicine and, you know, I did a science degree actually straight out of high school and did a year of that and then transferred into midwifery and I I finished the degree when I was 21 and it just felt like a really serious profession to have at that age. I was, you know, walking into these rooms, meeting these women who were, you know, in labor and I looked like a child myself. So I just also knew I didn't quite have the passion for it that the other women did that were doing the course. And they were all, I think I was the only person that had come straight out of um, high school, all of them else were mature age students and probably well into their thirties. And I sort of figured out quite early around the second year that it wasn't for me, but just kind of wanted to stick with finishing it. So while I was doing that degree, I was actually working in retail. So I started off at Minco. I got a job straight out of high school there. Seriously thought I was the coolest person in the world for working there. Remember those little scrunch bags that you kind of folded inside out? I just, I was, yeah, obsessed with them. So worked there for a little while. And then I moved across to Zimmerman and worked there for a couple of years. And I think that's when I realized that there was this whole back end to the fashion industry and that there were jobs out there 
that I just didn't really realize in high school um, that existed really. And it wasn't until I had that exposure through retail that I was like, oh, okay. I met a buyer while I was working at Zimmerman and I just couldn't believe that that's what she got to do for a job. I'd always, I know this sounds silly, but I'd always just loved clothes. It's just, I just love them. And I, yeah, like I said, I just didn't realize that I could make a profession out of it. So kind of while I was doing the midwifery degree, I realized that that was a possibility. So I finished that degree and I ended up doing my master's in fashion and textiles through RMIT and really enjoyed it. It was just a one year degree. And then I, I sort of moved into the fashion industry from there. Wow. And then how did you actually go from working in retail to getting into an office environment in fashion? I imagine that's notoriously hard. Yeah. Yeah. I had definitely heard it was throughout the uni, throughout my fashion degree, I'd heard that it was quite challenging to get a job, but I was really lucky. I actually, um, I just before I finished, probably about a month before I finished, a role at Maya came up as a buyer's assistant. So it was literally like the bottom of the bottom, but I, it was, it was just my dream to work there. Um, they just moved into their new offices in Docklands and it was like, it, it was kind of what you imagine a fashion office to be. And I went for an interview. It was a group interview. There was 50 of us. Oh my God, how daunting. I just, you know, we had to do those stupid, like, if you were, like, it was a group interview, um, the first component. It was like, if you were an animal, who would you be? What would you be? And, you know, which you had to say out loud in front of 50 other people. So I ended up getting just a, a regular interview from that. And I was really lucky. I think there was three positions that were um, available through that group interview process. And I was lucky enough to get a job before I'd even finished my degree. So I think for about two or three weeks, I was working at Maya and studying as well. And I knew instantly, as soon as I got there, I knew that I had made the right decision and that this was the industry for me. I'm probably, yeah, I'm not the most creative person in the room, but I definitely, you know, really enjoy that creative side that comes with being a buyer. But I really also love that kind of trading of a business and the financial side as well, which I just knew, I knew instantly that I had made the right decision and being at Maya, it was a really great training ground. It was, yeah, a perfect place really for me at that time. You must have been a very consistent person to still finish midwifery, potentially knowing in the back of your mind that it wasn't going to be where you were going to be for a while. Yeah. How did you have that tenacity to finish a course? I reckon I would have dropped out then and there if I was like, nah, this isn't for me. Yeah, well, I think so. The first year of midwifery was just very sort of uni-based and it wasn't until the the end of the second year that we really started to do our placement. And it wasn't until then that I was like, wow, this is full on. This is crazy. It was just a really grown up job. I don't know any other way to explain it other than that. And I think for me, knowing that I didn't live and breathe it the way that the other women around me did. And I just thought, you know what, it is such an important job and I didn't really think it was fair to be in that role if my heart and soul wasn't in it but in saying that I kind of at this stage I sort of knew that I wanted to get into buying and it was more a numbers a a timeline frame I was like it's it'll be faster for me to do the three-year degree and then do the one-year master's than start again from scratch and do the three-year fashion degree and then I don't know there was something in me that thought maybe when I'm older, I might want to come back to midwifery. I haven't yet, but 
I still sometimes, you know, daydream that maybe I will go back to that role, especially as we get through my story and, you know, through my pregnancies, um, you know, a lot of the times I've thought, maybe I will, you know, maybe I will go back to it. Hasn't happened yet though. (laughs) I can imagine that after what you've been through and experienced, I'm sure you have a lot of appreciation for midwives. So as you say, we will get to that. You said to me when we were talking before this interview that you knew you wanted to be a mum, but it wasn't this huge urge or push. What was the tipping point? for you from going from, oh, one day be a mum to let's start thinking about it seriously? Yeah. I, you know what? I was thinking about that the other day. It's funny. It really was a little bit of a sort of light light switch moment. Like I, I knew I kind of wasn't ready, but it was, you know, it was in the, the near future. Um, and I was kind of just tracking along like that for a while. And then it almost felt like overnight I just woke up and was like, oh, you know what? I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's start trying. I've been married for maybe a year or maybe a little bit less, probably six to 12 months I'd been married. And it just kind of felt like the next step in my life. But it, it really felt like just overnight a switch was flicked. And I was like, you know what? I'm, no, I'm ready. So I also had in the back of my mind, and I have no idea why I felt this way, but I had a feeling that it would be a little bit of a challenge for me to fall pregnant. And again, I don't know why I felt that way. It was a bit of an odd thing to think at the time, but I knew it wouldn't be an easy journey and it wasn't. So, um, yeah, I made that decision as well when I was about 30. I don't know. I guess you feel a little bit like, you know, time, you, you feel the pressure of time. I think when you're, you know, a woman in your thirties, but looking back, I'm like, Oh, you, you were being ridiculous. You were 30 years old. You had heaps of time, but yeah, I don't know. I just sort of felt a little bit of pressure as well. It's incredible. what that turning 30 can do to you in terms of of a catalyst of you thinking of the next step, which as you say, like with hindsight, it's just a number, but so many people say that it's actually quite amazing how many guests have said that. So as you say, pregnancy didn't come easily, didn't happen overnight. What happened when you started trying to conceive? Yeah, we probably were naturally trying um, on our own for about six months, but because even before I started trying, I had a feeling that things might have been a little bit of a challenge. I, I took myself off to my GP at about that six-month mark and he ran a series of blood tests and he called, I got the dreaded, the doctor wants to see you come in phone call. Um, and I was like, oh God, what's going on? And basically he said that my AMH, which is an indication of your ovarian reserve, was actually quite young, um, low for my age. So the way he kind of, explained it to me was that if I think I yeah I think I was 30 or 31 at the time he's like if you were in a room with 131 year olds you would have less eggs than 95 percent of them um so it was quite shocking he's like it's not doom or gloom but I wouldn't I'd go and see a fertility specialist sooner rather than later so with that I got a referral to see a fertility specialist Again, she was kind of like, it's fine. You know, it's not a huge issue. It doesn't, it has no, uh, it's no reflection on the quality of your eggs. It just means that you probably are not somebody that's going to be able to have children sort of past, you know, she didn't give me an an exact age, but I just sort of, you know, late thirties, I kind of imagined I'd probably be need to be done. So from that, we then started on a drug called letrozole, which is 
it's called ovulation induction. So basically you take this drug at the start of your cycle and then they give you an ultrasound and they tell you exactly when to have um, intercourse. So it's, you know, timed intercourse. They give you a trigger shot and it releases the egg and then you know that you're kind of having intercourse around the time where your eggs release. Um, and I was lucky enough to fall pregnant the very first time I did that. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, I'm just a little bit infertile. This is great. I didn't need that much help. And I was kind of, uh, yeah, I was really um, pleased that it had turned out so well. And how did you navigate pregnancy alongside work? Where were you at in your career at that point of view? Look, I, I was really lucky with my first pregnancy with Goldie. It was an easy pregnancy. I didn't really feel um, nauseous at all. I, yeah, I was just mentally in a really great place. I was so happy to be pregnant. I think because there had been that small hurdle to get over and to fall pregnant, I was really sort of grateful and really appreciative that I was pregnant. It was quite a busy time in terms of work. So by this stage, I was a full a senior buyer so I was traveling around the world probably four times a year and then doing um, trips to China twice so you know I was on a plane every eight weeks I still traveled a lot while I was pregnant with Goldie my last buying trip I was 27 weeks it was kind of the absolute cutoff that my obstetrician was letting me go but I felt great and in turn yeah I was still able to you know on these trips we walk a lot and I was still really able to do all of those things so I was able to manage quite well in that first pregnancy. And what did maternity leave look like for you? Did you have much of a plan in terms of how long you would take a step back from your role? Yeah I knew that I kind of wanted to have that 12 months off um, and I was really excited about it. Work had gotten quite crazy. It, it is a bit of a crazy industry. It's, it's fast-paced. It's like I said, there's a lot of travel involved as well. It's kind of difficult to do your job if you're not doing those trips. So obviously, you know, if you can't travel, um, someone else will do them for you, but it just makes your day-to-day role a little bit harder. So I was definitely ready to go on maternity leave. I think I had an expectation of what that would look like. And, you know, I was really, really excited. And I definitely knew that I wanted to have 12 months off with the idea that I could potentially have longer. It was kind of a little bit up in the air, but I knew I definitely wanted the full year. And you said that you remember waking up one morning and thinking to yourself, oh, I can't wait to just have a sleep in and rest one day soon. Mm. This is after you've given birth to Goldie. And a few seconds later, it hit you that you're a mum now and there weren't exactly rest days coming for you anytime soon. You said you think the sheer responsibility and relentlessness of being a mum hit you then. I remember this exact feeling too. Can you <laughs> go a little bit deeper into that for us? Absolutely. So, yeah, I I gave birth and it was, uh, it, overall, it was a really positive experience. And I remember, you know, day five saying to my husband, like, oh, I could just have seven of seven of these little things like I'm just loving it I'm so happy and you know it was all going quite well I had I had to have an episiotomy for you know during my birth which just meant that I was quite tender um, and then I developed mastitis around that two-week mark so I was in a bit of physical pain and discomfort yeah. around that time and I also had with mastitis you can also feel quite fluey um, and just sick and I just remember I'd, I'd been okay during the day and then I, it just sort of hit me out of nowhere and I was really unwell and I 
like I said, I remember waking up that morning, you know, just sort of opening my eyes and thinking, oh, that's okay. I'll just, I'll just do nothing today. I will just rest and, you know, I'll, I'll try and get better. And then immediately I was just, I think the guilt as well was already there because I was like, oh my God, I, I, I can't rest. And then I sort of, I think there was already guilt around, you know, feeling like I wasn't being the best mum because I wasn't putting her needs first already. And the the actual mothering side to being a mum, the knowing what my baby needs, the changing the nappies, feeding, you know, all of those things, that always came quite easily for me. But it was the responsibility of it that I just, it, it really, it just hit me like a ton of bricks around the two-week mark. And I just remember thinking like, I can't believe I'm responsible for this little life and just feeling so overwhelmed by that um, and the relentlessness of it. Like you are like, you know, when I look at that, I feel quite sorry for myself because I was like, you know, physically I was in a lot of pain, but you know, you've got to get up and, you know, Goldie was quite a small baby as well. So she was feeding every two to three hours and yeah, it was just quite a challenging sort of realization for me that, you know, it, it, it just really, yeah, it was quite challenging at the time. Overwhelming is a perfect word for it. And it definitely led to nighttime dread for me. Did you experience that in those early days? You know what? I've always been, I've always loved sleep and always been a great sleeper. So no, I was kind of more, more overwhelmed in the beginning of the day thinking, okay, I've got to do all of this again. But by the time the nighttime came around, I was okay. But I, again, I remember sort of feeding Goldie at like 3am um, during that time and you know because I had mastitis I remember her sort of taking her off the boob and she you know had blood all over her mouth because my oh. nipples were so cracked and I just remember thinking at that exact moment I'm not loving this right now and then again I felt so much guilt because I had expected to love every minute or you hear oh you've got to love every minute and I just even though I was really enjoying it and and you know I was enjoying a lot of it because I wasn't loving every second of it, I was thinking, am I doing this wrong? You know, like I just immediately had put so much pressure on myself um, to feel that way. And then of, of course, nobody's going to love feeding a baby at 3am with a cracked nipple. Like it's just not enjoyable. But at in that moment, I, you know, I, I'm able to realize that now with hindsight, but at that moment I thought, oh, I'm just not doing this right if I don't love every second of it. Yeah, and it's not the picture I guess we have painted for us when we're thinking about the newborn face. No, no one tells you about that. <laughs> no one tells you about the cracked bleeding nipples. I actually remember my sister-in-law telling me that and being like, what are you talking about? That doesn't happen. <laughs> Absolutely. I know. Or maybe they do tell you and you just don't, you just sort of. I always oh, wonder yeah. that too. I'm not sure which one it is. We'll never know. So you also mentioned what a huge lifestyle change it was and what a big adjustment it felt like. Yeah. What do you, th I feel like you've started to touch on those things with exactly what we were just talking about. What do you think felt like the biggest change for you going from this really busy international traveling career to being at home with a baby? like you said I, I was traveling a lot you know I had a you know really busy social life work was really full you know I just it, it felt like all a bit of a whirlwind really but you know as soon as I had Goldie like I said she was a really small baby so I was feeding her three hourly which meant 
you know, by the time I did the feed, then I had sort of a two hour, you, you know, lucky to have a two hour break between, and that was 24 hours a day. So I literally felt like I was just sitting on the couch yeah. feeding this baby. And I'm not somebody that loves, I'm sitting at home. I'm a bit of a, you know, I like to do things. Um, and even if that was just going out for a walk, but the issue as well with Goldie is that she was born in May. So, and it was a really cold winter that winter. And, and because she was my first baby, I was like, Oh, I don't want to take her out when it's too cold. And so I felt really housebound um, for a lot of it. And I found that probably, and, and quite isolated as well. So, you know, I lo- I'm probably quite a people person and like, you know, I, I like going to work and being around people and seeing friends and I, it really stripped a lot of that back. And it was just a lot of time with Goldie and I, which, you know, I think in the end actually did me wonders in slowing down a little bit, but it was quite the challenge for me to get used to. It's definitely a process. So I can understand that your world changes overnight. And I don't think there's anything that changes as drastically that you can't really prepare for. So no, no, totally understand that you're never alone, but you're very lonely at the same time. So I want to take you to just before you return to work, how are you feeling in the lead up to returning to work? Yeah, good. I ended up after those first couple of weeks where I was like, whoa, this is wild. I ended up finding myself in a really nice group with Goldie. We joined a mother's group and I clicked with a couple of them and we kind of sort of took that offline and did our own thing. And I had a lot, I was really lucky in the sense that I had a lot of friends during that time that had just had babies. So some were sort of with me um, and having um, babies at around the same time. And then some had older babies as well. So kind of had a lot of people in my life that got it and I could talk to and I found that really helpful we managed to squeeze a few holidays in and you know it was it was a really nice time in the end and I think I did sort of learn to slow down and enjoy the parts of motherhood that I had found quite challenging in the beginning then when Goldie was around nine months old COVID hit and for me those first few lockdowns I'm from Melbourne so it was you know lockdown city all the time but those first few lockdowns actually didn't change my life the way it probably did had it have been 12 months earlier when I was working because it almost felt like everyone was coming on maternity leave with me so it was actually I mean I hate to say it it wasn't actually the worst time for me during those first couple of months Um, I was supposed to go back in May at that 12 month mark but my work was on skeleton staff so they were actually only taking back a couple of people so I ended up having about 15 months off in the end so I I think I went back in July of 2020 and by that stage I was really ready for some social interaction we'd been in pretty heavy lockdowns through COVID and it was almost like something to do socially I think there I, I think you know, restaurants and cafes and I was going to say nightclubs, but I wasn't really going to them anyway. But, (laughs) you know, a lot of those things were closed anyway. So work was kind of, I think, where people were getting that sort of social hit. So going back for me, I was quite excited. And because Goldie was 15 months old, she was like, she was in a really good place. Um, And I was very lucky. My mother-in-law actually had Goldie for that first year. So she didn't, I didn't have to worry about that daycare transition or anything. So I was really excited to go back to work. Um, Yeah. And she was about 15 months old. 
And I guess you didn't, even though we obviously wish that borders weren't shut and that none of us went through this, I guess you didn't have the FOMO of having to turn down work trips if that was going to be your choice in the in the sort of infancy of returning to work. Absolutely. Well, I had been booked for a trip in August. So I was coming back in the July and then, yeah, but that obviously got cancelled. We didn't end up doing buying trips for about two years. So exactly right. There was zero FOMO because they weren't even on anyway. Yeah, so it wasn't the biggest, COVID wasn't the biggest impact to my life because I was already on maternity leave and yeah. And so eventually you look to grow your family. Yes. You knew that conception wasn't exactly going to happen overnight. How did you plan for that next pregnancy? Well, I was probably a bit cockier with this next pregnancy because, you know, I was like, I'll just have the let result and I'll fall pregnant straight away. It'll be fine. So... We started trying when Goldie was about six months old, which in hindsight, I'm like, that's just crazy. But, you know, I, I just thought it'd be fine. Um, and it it actually, yeah, so that was probably like the January of the following year. And we ended up doing about six rounds of letrozole back to back, all negative. And it was really disappointing because there's a few checkpoints throughout your cycle um, and everything always looked great. It was always very positive. And then I just wasn't getting pregnant at the end, which was just quite disappointing. I was still okay though. I think because Goldie was still so young, I, I you know, it wasn't, yeah. And I think because I was a mom in the beginning, I was sort of like, what if this never works? So I never become a mom. But because I had Goldie, it taken a little bit of that pressure off. After six months of that, my fertility specialist said, let's move on to IVF, um, which was something that was a bit of a shock to do. But at the same time, I was like, okay, let's just get it done. So I went through a full cycle of IVF. At the time, I didn't, you know, I didn't find IVF or any of the fertility treatments overly challenging. I think looking back, they did take its toll, but I was just kind of soldiering on. And at the time I would have said, oh, it's fine. But yeah, they probably did take a little bit of a toll. So we did the first round of IVF. I, Because of my low AMH, the expectation on my egg retrieval was quite low. I got nine eggs in the end, which they were quite pleased with. And then that resulted in three embryos. So we put in embryo one and then embryo two and neither of them took, which was even more devastating. Yeah, I found that really challenging. That two-week wait between when they put the embryo in to when you find out is particularly awful. I was absolutely petrified of doing pregnancy tests, so I would just wait and to, to do the blood test. Um, pregnancy tests are still, I think, a little bit of a trigger for me. Yeah, I I really, even seeing them in the supermarket aisle, I'm like, oh God. So yeah, I just, I found that really hard. Then that kind of brought us up to November and our fertility specialist said to us, let's just have a break over Christmas. You know, one, they're closed and two, let's just, you know, have a month off, have a drink. You know, I was trying so hard to do all the right things as well. And then beating myself up if I had a glass of champagne or you know, so it was nice to kind of have that break. And then, oh, I roll my eyes at myself for saying this, but then I became pregnant naturally during that break, which annoyed me because so many people were saying to me, oh, if you just relax, it'll happen. And I just wanted to punch them in the face. Oh, so, and they were bloody right. They were bloody right. <laughs> so I fell 
pregnant with Sonny sort of over that Christmas jam period, he was a really challenging pregnancy from the get-go. I was really nauseous. Um, and there was probably a good couple of weeks there where I literally lived off boiled water. Like I couldn't even drink cold water. It had to be hot, just wow. hot water. It was so weird. I lost heaps of weight. I had to go into the hospital to get like infusions because I wasn't eating and I was just so sick. It was such, and again, I was probably a bit cocky in that experience too, because my first pregnancy had just been perfect just so easy in in so many respects and this pregnancy just from as early as probably about five weeks was really quite hard how did you actually work and how did you parent when you were feeling that unwell yeah that was hard so work I would I just remember sitting in my car in the mornings and just being like oh my god I'm gonna be sick I you there was like a end of facilities kind of set up at our work where they have showers in the bathroom that people don't really use during the day. So I spent a lot of time in there because I just was nauseous all the time and actually, you know, vomiting quite a bit, um, which is not ideal to do at work. And then I found it, I, again, I found it really hard the second time around because obviously I was caring for Goldie. She was two at the time. She was, you know, she's quite an energetic little girl. And so, you know, I was really trying to keep up with her and then having massive guilt if I felt like I needed to, you know, have a rest day or, you know, a couple of hours, then I'd feel really guilty about it. So it was, yeah, it was really hard to, to juggle it all at that point. Was work aware of how unwell you were? Like, do you just soldier on and do the best you can and don't tell them too much? Or are you like, I can hardly work, so I'm just going to do what I can? Oh, look, I think I've been lucky. I, you know, the, the my two bosses at work, one of them is one of my best friends, even outside of work. So, you know, she knew. I, I, I told them quite quickly that I was pregnant. I think that just kind of set the tone of how I was feeling and allowed me to sort of take a little bit of a step back. But in saying that, that's kind of not who I am as a person. So I was still... You know, I was still doing my job. And look, I was sort of lucky. It wasn't like an all-day thing. I felt particularly bad in the mornings. And then, yeah, and it was probably around the 15. It was 10 weeks of, of quite serious morning sickness. And then at about the 15-week mark, I started to feel better. But then that is when we sort of ran into some other troubles with Sunny. So at the 13-week scan, everything was okay. But then at the 20-week scan there were some things picked up um, on the ultrasounds that were quite concerning, particularly around his heart and his liver. Yeah, so that was obviously quite a difficult time. We needed to go see some um, specialists. So there was a lot of time of uncertainty and waiting for answers and waiting to get in to see people and not quite knowing the, you know, what was going to happen, which was really difficult. But we knew from about 20 weeks that he was not very well. So at 32 weeks, unfortunately, you lost Sunny. What happened in those 12 weeks between you first knowing that something might happen? I assume the risk was there, but you were hopeful. What happened in that time between 20 weeks and 32? A million appointments. You know, just I was just being bounced back and forth between different specialists. You know, I met some really incredible people during that time um, that do just amazing work. People that operate on tiny little baby hearts and 
you know, just, yeah, some really amazing people, but it was just, it was awful. Um, he just, his condition got progressively worse and worse. You know, at one point they were saying, you know, he'll need a heart transplant and a liver transplant if he is to survive. So, you know, obviously that is just, you know, really difficult to hear. And he, yeah, as you said, he passed away at 32 weeks. So, um, you know, and it's, you know, I guess not a lot of people know then what happens after that. So, and I didn't at the time, even though I was a qualified midwife. So, you know, I had to birth Sunny like I would have. So my obstetrician basically gave me the choice of of how I would like to birth um, Sunny, but because I had already had a vaginal delivery with Goldie, he reckon he strongly recommended I do the same with Sunny. One to preserve my fertility, um, and two also um, he said, and this is such a great point, something I obviously never would have thought of. If you do have a cesarean after a stillborn you know, you've got that physical reminder of that scar, you know, every time you kind of look at your body, um, you know, which, you know, I, I, it's not something I had thought about, but at the same time, it's like, you know, I think about Sunny every day still. So, you know, scar or no scar, it it still would have been in my mind, but yeah. So I had, I, I birthed Sunny at 32 weeks. It was obviously an incredibly intense time. The birth itself though was, yeah, I, it sounds crazy to say, but it was it was quite a beautiful experience. You know, obviously I would, you know, take it all back in a heartbeat for him to still be there, but I had gone in thinking, oh, it's going to be the worst day of my life. And, and it was, it was the worst day of my life, but it was also the day I got to meet him and to hold him. And, you know, I became mum again and we got to, the hospital was amazing. We got to spend as much time with him as we wanted to. So we he was born on a Saturday. So we sort of spent all weekend with him. You know, they obviously do this, this kind of work comes up. And so they knew to sort of take, you know, memories of, of us with Sonny and little cuttings of his hair. And, you know, they were, the midwives in particular were just so incredible during that time. You know, it's it's all a bit of a blur now. It, when I sort of, talk about this time in my life it often feels like I'm telling somebody else's story I still find it very hard to believe that this actually happened to my family but you know I don't get to talk about Sunny like I do my other children so it's always I think people are always very reluctant to bring him up to me because they don't want to upset me which is understandable but to me it's always such a privilege to be able to talk about him and that time in the hospital it actually was a really special time it's the only t- you know it's the only time i ever had with him yeah and it was really the grief after those two days that were that that's really that the hard part for me even though obviously there was challenging times while i was in the hospital yeah very difficult so sorry you had to go through that. As you say, I think people are really scared to ask questions around stillbirth because mm. it's so traumatic for the people it happens to. So you don't have to go anywhere you don't want to here. But at what point did you know that he wasn't going to survive? Obviously, you must have known pre-birth. When Was it something that happened physically where you, you knew or was it them telling you something based on tests or how did that happen? Yeah, a bit of everything, really, a bit of everything. I just remember one ultrasound appointment where the sonographer was just, I I think I was still in a little bit of denial about how unwell he was. 
and there's this man who I just he's a sonographer and I just I I just absolutely love him I actually stalked him in my pregnancy with Ziggy like I mean I would not see anybody else and I really trusted his opinion and he was probably the only one that actually told me how it it just really told me straight how unwell Sonny was and I think everyone really kind of danced around it a little bit and and not because they weren't being honest. I think it was just very unknown, but he was just such, he, he's like a professor. He's like the head of the ultrasound place. And he, you know, he's a very, very smart man. And he just kind of really laid it out in black and white for me, which although it was brutal at the time, it really helped kind of understand kind of what we were up against yeah so you know again you just it's just really hard and you have to rely on on people and you know I'm a bit of more of a black and white person so it was just that 12 weeks we were just living in gray that whole time there was you know it's so hard to explain and not to have that certainty about what the outcome was going to be was really difficult but he was the only person that was just kind of quite honest with the severity of Sunny's case and so one of your bosses you mentioned is a best friend, even outside of work. At what stage was work aware of what you were going through and how did you, yeah. having to deal with the communication around that is just a lot in and of itself. Yeah, I was l- very lucky in that sense that she, my boss, who I'm um, good friends with, knew throughout the pregnancy what was happening. But like I said, I... Not that I was in denial. I don't. I don't think that was the right word. But I, I actually didn't know what was what was happening. Um, and because Sunny was just getting progressively sicker, I don't think anyone knew um, exactly what was happening. So I just remember about two weeks before he was born. Very shortly after, I had that meeting with that sonographer, um, just breaking down and just yeah, just absolutely breaking down to her. And then I didn't real. And that's the funny thing about baby loss is. You think that it's rare, but, you know, when I was sharing my story with her and I was, you know, so upset, she actually shared and I didn't realise, I thought I knew everything about her. She told me that her older sister had actually had a stillborn baby, Mm. um, you know, 10 years ago and kind of, she actually put me in touch with her even before I lost Sunny. And yeah, it's funny because you, you do, you think it's just this thing that just is such a rare event, but the more I've sort of been a part of that world, the more I know that it's actually really common and, you know, so many people are affected by it. So I was lucky that she knew early throughout the journey where I was at and my bigger boss um, is just amazing. So obviously when I lost Sunny, Tyson texted my boss from work and I told her what had happened and they were basically like, you just have as much or a little as little time off whatever you need to do will support you you know and the other thing is that a lot of people don't know is after a certain gestation and I think it's around viability which is about 24 weeks you are legally entitled to paid government maternity leave um, and that 12 months off so really I could have had a full maternity leave with Sunny had I chose you know wished to do that but in those early days I was just literally taking it one day at a time and they made that really easy in the work sense because I, I literally just packed I, I didn't you know just left everything and 
they carried on with my workload. So I was, yeah, forever grateful to those two women. Another amazing female startup doing great things, Pure Mama supports women on their journey to motherhood with nourishing body care that they can trust. Powered by pure and naturally derived ingredients that work alongside your body's changes and provide nurture and comfort to those areas that deserve some extra love. I purchased a bottle of their liquid gold belly oil, which is sold out three times over, and I can assure you it's as good as it sounds. Not only has it helped me with my increasingly itchy belly, it's also become a ritual at the end of the day to make my tired and sore body feel good in late pregnancy. And what's even better is that all products are midwife tested, approved and recommended. Shop the full Pure Mama range, including their signature belly oil, scrubs, nipple butter and gift sets at puremama, that's M-A-M-A, dot com or online from Mecca Beauty. And as you say, it was when you got home, I guess, that the grief really struck you. How long did you take off your paid job? And also, how did you parent during that time? Like, even that's a huge thing. I I think I ended up having about four or five months off my paid job. Um, You know, in those early days, I was just like one day at a time. There were some days where the grief was so overwhelming that it was just a one minute at a time. You just need to get through this minute, Jade. Yeah, Tyson, my husband, had five weeks off, which was really helpful. I think in those first five weeks, he really took the lion's share of work with um, Goldie. So it kind of really allowed me time to, you know, sit in the grief you know, I remember the midwife at the hospital saying to me, which in hindsight, I'm like, I don't know why she said that. It wasn't the best bit of advice, but she said, you just need to get through the first eight weeks. So during that first eight weeks, I've just got to get through this first eight weeks. And I've had some experience with grief. My mum passed away when I was 27. So it was about six or seven years um, before I'd lost Sunny. So I thought, you know, I've, I, I know this, I've, I've got this, I've done this before. It, it's, sounds strange saying this but the grief with Sunny was a really different experience to the one with mum and a lot harder and I think you know that's not because I love either of them um, more than the other I think just when you lose a parent although I you know I was only 27 and my mum was only 47 she was really young when she passed away you know and I was everything that you would imagine I would have been. I was incredibly sad. I had time off work and, but it just felt a little bit more like a shared grief because there were other people that knew her. You know, I could cry with her sisters. I could cry with my dad. We could share stories of her. You know, a lot of people have lost a parent or, you know, a grandparent or, you know, somebody. So when somebody said to me, I I get it. I know what you're going through. I lost blah, blah, blah. They did. They got it. I guess the inevitability inevitability of it that is that we do lose our parents but we never hope to lose our child absolutely I think in some ways your entire life you kind of spend you know you might not actively be thinking about it but you know in the you know in somewhere in the back of your mind you know that you know that's what's going to happen whereas you know I never in a million years would have thought that I would have would have lost a child and losing him changed 
so much about my life. It felt like my life had just been turned upside down, set on fire and stomped on. And every aspect of my life was touched mm-hmm. by his loss. I felt like I didn't even know who I was anymore. It Like there was, I just felt like I lost my identity. Whereas when I lost my mom, I was still me. I didn't, you know, I didn't change who I was. And I found that really challenging, you know, and there was just days where I thought, like, without sounding dramatic, I was just like, I just, I will not survive this. I am not going to survive this. So I was really in those first couple of weeks, just trying to find other women, whether that be through podcasts or through books, or I was just trying to find other women who had the same story as me, because I needed to know that they had survived it, therefore I could too, because I, I just needed to hear my story in somebody else. So yeah, there's a, there's some fantastic books out there and, you know, podcasts and even Instagram pages that I did find really helpful in those early days because I could see my story in another woman and sort of, you know, see how they had kind of transitioned through that, those early few sort of weeks and months and years of grief. And seeing someone else go through something that you're going through is so huge. We've had a baby close to me that we haven't lost, but we've just had a really challenging time, a baby very close to me. And the desperation to find other people's stories and see how they're getting through it just means everything. So Mm. I can totally resonate with that. How did you actually go about returning to work and how did you feel in the lead up this time around with an experience that you know, you didn't hope for or didn't expect to be in your future, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Look, again, we were, I feel like a recurring theme of all my pregnancies and postpartum is COVID, but the week I had Sunny, we went into, I think it was our final lockdown that we ever, that we had, but it was a really intense one. Like the playgrounds were shut with the 5k thing. And so not only was I, you know, obviously, grieving really heavily I also was so isolated from my family and friends and even just the small things that would bring me joy through the day like walking down and you know down to the cafe and getting a coffee and meeting up with some friends and going to the park like the literally the playgrounds were were closed even if you're going through something like that at that time you couldn't have say your dad come over theoretically yes (laughs) we couldn't I, I yeah no we couldn't but I mean, at that point in time, I, I, you oh, know, I wouldn't have survived without, totally. with my, without but my family. But they were the rules, so even for people going through something like that. They were the rules. Oh. I think you could have got a medical clearance to have someone over. I, I can't really remember exactly. It was all a bit of a blur, but yes, theoretically, they yeah. were the rules. Wow. Yeah, it was just navigating the grief and the lockdown at the same time and being a mum to a really active two-year-old. We were also, just to throw another thing at us, we were also renovating our house. So we had moved into quite a small two bedroom apartment while we renovated our house. That renovation took way longer than anticipated because of COVID and, you know, the shutdowns and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, we were also in a really small confined space during that time, which just kind of added to it. So I guess in some respects, going back to work also seemed like a bit of an escape, but I was nervous. I felt like people were looking at me differently. You know, I was the girl whose baby died and, you know, I didn't want to be that person. I was, but I didn't want to be her. I didn't want to be the sad girl anymore. And 
going back to work with a bit of a return to my former life before I lost Sonny because it really felt like the day I lost him, my life would, would turned into before I lost Sonny and after I lost yeah. Sonny. I, I felt like very two very different people. And for me, it was kind of nice to return to a little bit of the person I was before, although it definitely came with its challenges. So I, I I park at my work and I had walked into the office and I work for quite a big company. So, you know, there's people in my brand that all know what had happened, but there's there's lots of other people within the wider business who knew that I was pregnant because they'd seen me around the office, but didn't necessarily know what had happened. Um, so I swear to God, I was 15 seconds into my first day back to work and someone goes, oh my God, you've had the baby. <laughs> And because I was at the lift waiting to get into the lift with like 20 other people surrounding us, I was like, oh, how do I, I can't tell her. If we had been one-on-one, I would have actually told her what had happened because there was literally 20 other people around me. I wasn't going to be like, yeah, and he died. So yeah, I'm back at work. So I just kind of went, mm, I'm just going to stairs. Um, and I was like, can't believe I have been in this office for 15 minutes yeah. and it's already shaped up that way. So when I got up to my floor where the brand I work for is, I ended up just pulling my boss aside and was like, I feel like I need to address the elephant in the room. So I ended up, my bosses ended up calling a little meeting. There's about oh, probably about 30 or 40 people in our brand. And I just kind of spoke to them about what had happened I felt like I had to yeah you got up yourself though yeah yeah you know and I've worked with a lot of these I've been there for 10 years so there's you know there's a lot of old um familiar faces and a lot of friends in the crowd as well so I mean it would it definitely isn't something that you know I enjoy doing but I thought I just needed to kind of rip the band-aid off and I've always been willing to speak about Sunny it's it's not you know, and in the early days, I, you know, just saying his name, I would cry. You know, I'm able to kind of talk about him now. You know, a lot of the times I do still cry, but I'm I'm able to kind of speak about him without that emotion. Mm-hmm. It's not as raw anymore for me. And so I think for me, it helped kind of addressing what had happened. And it allowed people to feel a little bit comfortable um, in talking to me about um, the experience too. As I get older, I realise that people that go through grief almost carry a load of navigating how other people feel about their grief and how how they're meant to be with it. Even you saying you didn't want to be the sad person and I can totally imagine that. Mm. How did you, I imagine that when you got up that there were people crying. I know if I was your colleague, I, I would have been. I mean, I've been trying to hold back tears right now. How do you navigate other people's grief for you when it's your grief that they're that's making them so sad? Yeah, that it, it it's really that that I found really difficult because I often found I was consoling people on my loss. You know, people say I felt like people went to different extremes. You know, some people would ignore you and you know try and avoid you and. I felt like other people wanted to give you this kind of like motivational speech about how, you know, everything will be okay and you'll come out bigger and better. And there is that kind of narrative around grief in our society that, you know, I I found that it's like, you've got to come out of this, this bigger, better version of yourself and that everything happens for a reason, but it doesn't like my baby died and it was this. 
And I don't need to, there doesn't need to be a silver lining out of this, you know, it happens all the time. And I found that really hard to kind of manage other people's emotions when mine were so raw. Um, But, you know, I think that's the hardest thing is that nine times out of 10 comes from a really good place and they're just trying to make you feel better. People are so just want to make you feel better that they end up saying some not silly is maybe not the right word but they say things that probably they don't mean to offend you you know I got a lot of like oh you're living my worst nightmare I don't know how you're how you're doing this. people saying the worst nightmare thing I cannot cannot handle that and I'm like I know but I don't need you to no, remind yeah. me and it's like what do you People would be like, I don't know how you're, you know, carrying on. It's like, well, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Just die on the floor right now too. I don't know. I found that really unhelpful because it's like, hey, you're already feeling shit, but I just want to remind you that your life would be unbearable for me right now. But then you know what? There was some people that just amazed me with their kind of generosity and their um, support, you know, and that wasn't, the crazy thing was it wasn't necessarily the people that I thought it was these kind of people that were on like the outskirts of my mm. life that I found really came forward. And I remember speaking to someone who had been through quite a similar story and them saying to me, and it just sort of helped me understand because I, you know, it changed my relationship with a lot of people too. And she was kind of saying that often the people that are closest to you, they're the most invested in your happiness. So they're the ones that want you to re- recover or, you know, feel better the fastest whereas the people that are further away from you will allow that time and space to kind of sit with you in their grief because they're not as invested in your wow that's amazing I've never heard anything like that but it makes so much sense when people close to you are going through something hard yeah it's almost unbearable it is and so you're trying to make it okay for you so that's okay for them or vice versa yeah and I just you know, I do feel like there's such parallels as well between kind of grief and motherhood in the sense that it's like I was allowed this, and I don't know if it was society or my own expectations. I sort of allowed myself that kind of, or it could have been the midwife at the hospital that said you can have eight weeks, but I sort of really allowed that eight weeks to just feel the feels and, you know, to be a, you know, hot mess and all of those things. And, but then after that eight weeks, I was like, okay, you've got to move on, Jade. You've got to start feeling better. You've got to. So I was spending a lot of time pretending that I was okay. But it's like, you know, when I look back now, I'm like, you know, it's, it's been a bit over two years and I'm, I'm still not, you know, I'm still not okay about it. I'm still, you know, I can manage my life a little bit better. And like I said, the grief's not so raw, but I feel like where we need to sort of move on and pretend that things are always yeah. okay. And that's very much like motherhood too. We're expected that, you know, we put on a brave face and we pretend that things are okay. And, you know, it's often, you know, frowned upon to kind of talk about the harder parts of life. But, you know, I've found that has been the single most healing thing for me is talking about how I feel honestly. And, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to find, um, I was sort of paired up with the hospital had this really great support network when you leave and they pair you up with another woman who has had a stillborn baby, but she's quite, you know, the lady that I was paired up with her baby was born 10 years ago. She's obviously quite a fair way down the track. And she actually then paired me up with another girl who she had been working with and we lost our babies four weeks apart. And 
having her and being able to kind of navigate this experience with her has just been so beneficial for me because she's probably the only person um, that I can really truly talk to about the experience. And, you know, my friends are amazing and they really try, but unless you've been through it, it's kind of like motherhood in that sense as well. Unless you've been a mum to a baby that died, it's really hard to kind of really understand what it's like. And, you know, I obviously had my husband, he was amazing and really helpful on all of this, but it's so different. It's such a different experience for a man and a woman. I think there's, there's a physicality to a stillborn baby for a woman that he would just never understand. Mm. And I think men and women just grieve quite differently as well. And I was often comparing myself to Tyson. We laughed because another thing that the hospital gave us was six sessions with a grief counsellor. And after the sixth session, the grief counsellor kind of graduated Tyson um, and was like, okay, you know, you're, you're kind of done, but Jade, I want you to keep seeing me. And so Tyson and I quite always kind of laugh and I'm still seeing her. Um, and again, talking about it and, you know, being able to express how I feel has just been so beneficial. I can imagine someone like your dad who knows you've lost your mum and you're his daughter and he knows what you've been through. It would actually, I've never thought about it really deeply until now, but it would be impossible to let him in on how you're really feeling because you love him and you want to protect him. So I can, mm. I've never really thought about how hard it would be to actually find exactly who you need to be exactly who you can be in those moments. So I'm glad that they offer those services. Yeah. Yeah. You eventually fall pregnant with Ziggy. I imagine this was laced with a whole lot of feelings, but I know that he's been very healing for your family. Mm -hmm. How did you navigate pregnancy though? Obviously, I can't imagine that you can push down fear after what you've been through. I knew the moment that I left the hospital with Sunny, and this sounds a little bit callous, but it's I just, and I've spoken to a lot of women that have lost babies, but I knew that I wanted to be pregnant again. I, I, I knew I needed to wait a little bit of time for to heal both physically and mentally, but I knew that on my radar, I wanted to get pregnant again. And so we, my obstetrician and I kind of worked out a little bit of a plan. I had one final little embryo left and he said to me, anytime from January onwards, I want to give your body six months to recover. So we ended up putting the embryo in on Australia Day and I found out on Sunny's six-month anniversary that I was pregnant with Ziggy, um, which felt a little bit kind of full circle moment. Yeah, all of the fields, um, obviously really excited. Knowing that I that had it had taken me 12 months to fall pregnant with Sunny, I was really, I didn't think I had it in me to go through the heartbreak of infertility and you know, the treatments and the negatives that, you know, come. So again, I felt really lucky that I fell pregnant with uh, with Ziggy quite quickly. The pregnancy was terrifying. I still say it's probably the bravest thing I've done. Again, without trying to sound too dramatic, it felt really life or death for me, this pregnancy, because I knew... So much at stake. You couldn't go through that again. So much. And I knew I wouldn't, I just was like, I will not survive another loss. Yeah. If this baby dies, so do I. Like, I, I cannot do this again. I don't think that's dramatic. I think a lot of mums and a lot of parents would understand that. Um, the pregnancy was, 
again, a little bit more of a challenging one, somewhere between Goldies and Sunnies. I wasn't as sick as I was with Sunny, but I was still a little bit unwell. It was an uneventful-ish pregnancy, but I think my obstetrician was kind of keeping a close eye on me. And yeah, it, it was, yeah, thank God it was quite uneventful. The scans though were, even though I never really received any bad news, he was a, a little bit on the small side, Ziggy, but um, apart from that, all was, all was well. But going into those scans, every single one of them, I felt like I was being led to my execution. I was a panic attack doesn't even really do it justice. I actually, it's how I would have felt being led to my death. I think I was like almost having to be dragged in there. Um, like I said, I stalked this sonographer. Like he ended up having a bike accident and needed a surgery himself, the sonographer, and they wanted to try and change me to another person. And I was just like, no, he will, he'll just have to have his surgery and just come in and just do it. Like, no. And look, he was great. And when I saw him the next time, I'm like, don't ever leave yeah. me. Like, we Stop riding. Stop bike riding. Like, <laughs> don't do I'll that again. move into your house. <laughs> yeah, like, whatever. I'm like, just don't do that yeah. to me again. But he was great. And look, I was lucky. It was, like I said, it was an uneventful pregnancy. Could you ever give in to the pregnancy? Like, was there a certain week or a certain scan where you could finally relieve yourself to it or not? You know what? I thought that that's how it would have been in the beginning, and I was like, "Oh, if I can get to past the twenty-week scan and have a have a fine twenty-week scan, I'll be fine." And I did. I had the twenty-week scan, and I was okay for about two days. And then, for me, as the pregnancy progressed, I actually felt more anxious because I knew from about seventeen weeks, if the baby died, I'd have to birth um, the baby, and I. I couldn't do that again. I couldn't birth another baby that ha- that had died. So the the longer it went, the more that it felt there was more at stake. So um, I ended up having Ziggy at 38 weeks and it was a really lovely birth. Um, like you said before, I have found him being here incredibly healing in ways that I can't really quite articulate. You know, I feel... I very much have felt Sunny's presence throughout this pregnancy and through Ziggy. You know, someone said as well that grief is just love that has nowhere to go. And I think now I have somewhere for that love to go. And even though, you know, I'd take it all back and have three of them running around right now if I could, you know, having space to love another baby and having that birth where a baby cries and is alive and is all of the things that, you know, you imagine a birth would be. It's just, yeah, there's, there's something that I can't even articulate. It's, you know, it, there's something physical and in my body that I, that, yeah, it's really hard to kind of tell you how healing he's been, but he has, yeah, he's been such a wonderful addition to our family. And it's another part of it is just, it's really nice for that journey and that, that book of trying for babies and pregnancies and births to be well and truly closed and to not have to, you know, I'm done with the three of them. You know, it's been one hell of a ride, but I am, you know, really grateful in the end, you know, as much as I'd take it all back to have Sunny here and as much as I hate to say it, that they were right, there has been some silver linings in losing him as well. And I do think that that is, you know, I'm, I'm so much more aware of what I've got and how lucky I am. The transition to be a mum again has been so much easier than when I found it with Goldie because, you know, I've already got that responsibility with her. Having another baby 
hasn't sort of doubled that responsibility. It was always there. So I, I found the transition to being a mum to Ziggy this time around really easily. And it was a really nice sort of postpartum experience for me. And this seems like such a silly question to ask you after what we've just been talking about. Almost sounds seems a bit too trivial to even ask, but what was the return to work like when you went back after Ziggy? Yeah, you know what? That's been harder than than not as hard as with Sunny, but it's definitely been harder than what I found with Goldie. It's just the actual juggle of the of managing two other little people and my job, I found a lot more stressful this time around. Yeah, I sort of just, I constantly kind of feel like I'm not being the best version of myself for them. And then also not doing 100% at work, even though I, 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 you know, probably am, but it's just sort of feeling like you're not doing a, a fantastic job in either arena, which I kind of find a little bit difficult. But I, yeah, we're making it work for now. Um, I didn't really want to send him to daycare until he was a little, until he turned one, which he did in. October and now I kind of can't really get him in until Jan so I just it's just been a really big juggle with the with the two of them but yeah definitely harder than the, with just baby number one. And you recently went on your first buying trip in a long time I think your first one since motherhood tell us about that. Yeah that was that was yeah interesting the last time I traveled I was 27 weeks pregnant with Goldie so this was my first one back um, and I was really looking forward to it because it was such a big part of my life before I was a mum and before I lost Sunny. And it just felt like kind of returning to something that was who I used to be. Um, I was just, I was quite looking forward to that plane ride to LA and just having 16 hours uninterrupted to be fed and to watch TVs and have a break, which is not something I haven't really had in the last four years. And so I was really looking forward to it, but I was really nervous to leave, particularly Ziggy. Um, he's a bit of a mummy's boy and I, you know, I, I'm still breastfeeding and so I was pumping and, there, you know, logistically it was quite hard. And the first couple of days I found really challenging. And I said to my boss, I was like, it, it, it's sort of giving me the same feelings I had a little bit from when I lost Sunny in the sense that I feel I'm away from my baby and even though it's such a different setting, I can't get back to him even if I wanted to. And it just, I, I kind of, I hadn't even thought about that connection before I went, but found that really quite challenging for the first couple of days. And then by the time we kind of got to Europe, I was like, you know what, Jade, you've got a couple more days of this. You're going to be back with them in the daily grind. Just enjoy yourself. And I was kind of able to then sort of let my hair down and, and have a good time and, you know, enjoy the things that I, you know, really like about traveling and, you know, doing that job. So it, it was a bit of a tale of two stories and harder than I had thought, but then also, I, you know, I, um, I, I found it quite nice in the end. And you say that you're still breastfeeding. What's been, what are your biggest tips around breastfeeding and returning to work? so hard I was like when I first went back to work I was pumping in the car on my lunch break um now he's down to two feeds so I'm kind of just doing morning and night I think for me it was just taking that pressure off that afternoon feed and just dropping it um and moving to formula because the pumping at work was just not working yeah it was really the first time I was able to be like you know what he's still having his morning and night feeds he's still you know able to have that connection with him you know two times a day 
So I moved him to formula um, on that feed, probably about a month into going back to work because yeah, I just found the pumping at work really hard. It was always when I was in a meeting or yeah. it just, it just wasn't really working. It's not good fun pumping. It's not good no, fun at all. No, that's the thing. I hate pumping too. I love <laughs> breastfeeding, but I hated pumping. So I'm exactly the same. I totally get it. Thank you so much for sharing your story so candidly. I have one more question for you. For anyone that might be listening to this that is navigating the loss of a baby and has to return to their paid work, what advice would you give them? Oh, yeah, look, I really hope for their sake that they're able to return like I was when they're ready. And I know that, you know, not everyone has the luxury to do that. I think just setting up as much support around yourself, you know, both at work and outside of work. You know, I like I said, I still see my grief counsellor and I think maybe putting some more frequent appointments in the diary around that going back to work time um, would probably be wise. I think having somebody, and again, I'm lucky because I've got a really supportive workplace, particularly with the people I work with. But if you can find just that one person at work that you can pull aside and, you know, be honest with um, and not to be too hard on yourself. And, and that's kind of what my thought process was when I went back if I was going to go back and it not work that would have been fine too and maybe just sort of dipping your toe in I started back at just two days a week um, and then slowly progressed up from there and I think that that was the right thing for me as well again I know it's hard everyone's in a different situation but I think yeah if you can just kind of arm yourself with as much support as possible and you know be honest with yourself and those around you about how you're feeling I think that's what worked most for me. Thank you so much for sharing your incredible story. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me, Lucinda. Thanks for listening to Ready or Not. If you liked the show, please tell your friends, subscribe or write a review. You can also find us on Instagram at readyornot.pod. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.